Welcome to the Sui Generous Show, your unique perspective on all things related to your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. With Erica Merrill, I'm attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. In segment one today, we'll be covering criminal injustice news, including a study from the University of Vermont and Cornell University on racial bias training for police. Spoiler alert, it doesn't make cops any less racist. We'll be talking about how people have turned the police's abuse of rings and other connected internet devices on its ear. And we'll travel down to Louisville, Kentucky, where cowards in the state prosecutor's office have named Breonna Taylor a co-defendant in the prosecution of Jamarcus Glover. In segment two, as promised, we'll be talking about the right to a jury trial during the COVID-19 pandemic. To make sure you don't miss any episodes of our show, subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. Make sure you follow us on social media, facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense, and on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at T-L-O-B-J. Make sure you check out T-L-O-B-J.com for everything you need to know about your civil rights and your criminal injustice rights. Erica, did you see in the news this week the study conducted by the University of Vermont and Cornell, where researchers found that despite some very minor improvements, comprehensive training and education aimed at training officers to recognize and avoid racially biased police practices did not alter police behavior in any significant amount, especially during traffic stops. Yeah, I mean, I did see that, Brian. And one of the things that I thought about was the fact that Vermont is not a you know, very racially diverse state, uh, as, not as racially diverse as other states, that's for sure. But you know, good for them for, for trying to improve. Uh, it's definitely interesting to see that um, even with the training, that there was still a huge bias toward people of color. Sad situation to know that even in a state uh, like Vermont, as progressive as it is, that they, the implicit bias of police officers when it comes to uh, the policing of minorities remains strong and deeply ingrained. So what is an implicit bias? So implicit bias is the unconscious practice of linking groups to stereotypes, which according to social scientists affects perception and how people behave. So in social identity theory, an implicit or an unconscious bias or an implicit or unconscious stereotype or attribution to a particular group um, are the stereotypes that shape experience and are based on learned associations between particular qualities of people and social categories like race and gender. So the, the general stereotype that African-Americans are more prone to violence and crime is an implicit bias. The general stereotype that African-Americans are more likely to be in possession of narcotics is an implicit bias. And these sorts of implicit biases are not borne out in actual data. Implicit bias training is being used more and more frequently across the country in response to the discoveries or the acknowledgements of racial bias and policing. 
the idea that being, uh, the idea being that helping officers identify their subconscious prejudices will lead to different policing decisions and hopefully fewer people being shot and murdered by the police. So what did the study conclude? So the researchers looked at police traffic stops by on an agency by agency basis and in seven Vermont towns and cities um, and particularly by the Vermont State Police Department. Uh, what they found was that black drivers are still more likely to be pulled over and searched by white drivers by four times the amount and they are less likely by about 5% to have actually been found with contraband during the course of a search. Wow, that's, that those are very interesting findings. So why is this important? Well, the fact that traffic stop racial disparities and bias remains extensive, even in a state as liberal as Vermont, um, really demonstrates the deep concerns about the effectiveness of these programs in other states and through federal consent agreements that are the result of 1983 civil rights lawsuits. Now in Vermont, the state police are using the results of this study to hold a mirror up to themselves. And we applaud the Vermont State Police for doing so. Uh, they're trying to find ways to improve and they're doing so by sharing these results with the entire nation and in particular with their line, uh, their line troopers. And they're linking performance evaluations of those troopers um, to their effectiveness in promoting bias-free policing. Now, in the words of the researchers, this study makes clear that racial bias and negative racial, racial stereotypes permeate our country regardless of where you are. No state is immune. It's really sad that training isn't helping. It is a sad reality of policing in America right now. Erica, did you also see in the news this week that uh, the Internet of Things is now being used against police officers? And we've, dis we've covered in this show several times how police are using things like the Amazon Ring and other video doorbells to spy on people as they go about their daily business and to spy into people's homes and invade their privacy. But what we have now found due to a November 2019 FBI bulletin is that uh, police are being spied on themselves, are being watched as they travel through neighborhoods and they're being used as an early warning system for people who are being subjected to uh, warrants. And the Amazon Ring and other Internet of Things devices are being used as an early warning system. Wow, that's, that's super interesting. Do you mind reminding everyone what is the Internet of Things? So the Internet of Things are devices that are connected to the Internet that are not computers or smartphones. We're talking about things like televisions, doorbells, security systems, baby monitors, uh, smart refrigerators, and of course your, um, your Echo or your um, Apple HomePod, key fobs, even Roombas. 
Wow. <laughs> I'd love to know how they're going to use a Roomba, <laughs> but um, if you could tell us a little bit about what the opportunities for law enforcement officers are when it comes to the internet of things. So as we've explored in previous shows, real time and historic movement data can be extracted from these devices and can confirm or contradict alibis or statements. Um, they can use search and command history to identify what these devices are being used for and how they're being used in the individual's home. Um, and they can uncover audio and video recordings from these devices that the homeowner may not realize are being collected and preserved. Wow, so what are the challenges to law enforcement officers uh, posed by the Internet of Things? So in one particular case of a search warrant in Louisiana, uh, the subject was able to see and hear everything happening in his residence from an offsite location. And he was able to covertly monitor law enforcement activity while they were on the premises via his ring doorbell. Now this remote monitoring of pro property creates an advantage in the knowledge of police activity and ability to erase, delete, or destroy evidence. Now, a check on law enforcement behavior is also available here because we can now watch while they execute the search warrant and make sure that they're not planting evidence in a particular location. Wow, that's, that's, that's going to be very interesting for future cases. I, I think we're going to have um, a lot to talk about in the future now that the tables have been turned on the law enforcement officers. Erica, I think the Internet of Things is going to become a cutting edge area for Fourth Amendment jurisprudence as we travel down this path of more and more items in our household being connected to the Internet. Um, having cameras installed in them, having a tracking history of one kind or another, an interaction history. We'll be able to use things like, you know, maybe some down, sometime down the road, your smart refrigerator will become your alibi because you can prove you were not at a particular crime scene because you ordered milk using your smart refrigerator. Those sorts of avenues are, are hot topics and sources of data to prove on the behalf of criminal defendants that their stories are in fact the truth. So Erica, the last thing I wanted to talk and see if you heard about this week was that these cowards in the state, po the state prosecutor's office in Kentucky have now tried to list Breonna Taylor as a co-defendant in the Jamarcus Glover prosecution. I'm just speechless when it comes to this. It's, it's obviously an attempt to protect the law enforcement that made the mistake. But to me, it, it, it seems despicable. And I find it disgusting that these police officers who broke into Breonna Taylor's home to execute an illegal search warrant and ended up murdering her 
are now being backed by state prosecutors who are trying to tarnish and destroy her reputation due to their abysmal failures. This is a shameful attempt at a cover up and relates directly back to the state's original failed effort to connect Ms. Taylor to the illegal behavior of her ex-boyfriend, Jamarcus Glover. Indeed, the botched and murderous campaign that took her life was motivated by an attempt to link her to Mr. Glover's alleged drug trafficking at the very beginning. Remember, this illegally obtained and erroneous warrant was designed to try and link her to the criminal activity of Mr. Glover, and no, ex no link existed in reality. Wow, I mean, how is it even possible that somebody can be accused of a crime after they've died? Nobody can be accused of a crime after they've died. Death ends all prosecutions. Mr. Glover's defense attorney was accurate when he observed that much, and it's unheard of in the criminal justice system. I have, I have had, unfortunately, several clients die in a variety of ways, from drug overdoses to traffic accidents during the course of their criminal prosecution. And in every single one, the prosecutor's office immediately filed a motion to dismiss the charges against the deceased. Even with irrefutable proof, a dead person cannot be tried, a dead person cannot be convicted, and a dead person cannot be sentenced in a court of law. So there is no purpose in bringing her in to Jamarcus Glover's prosecution, other than to try and get him to snitch on her and support the narrative of the state prosecutor's office. So in essence, that is exactly what the prosecutors were trying to do? That's exactly it. By offering a plea deal that held as a contingency that he implicate Ms. Taylor, the state prosecutor is trying to connect a crime without any evidence that she was involved in it. This was a craven move to try and protect the reckless and unfit law enforcement officers who murdered Breonna Taylor by using a tried and true tactic of attacking the victim after the fact. This is kind of how Attorney General Barr recently said that Jacob Blake was armed. It implies that the police officer's use of force was justified even if the officer involved at the time had no reason to believe that there was a justification for their shootings. It is using the color of a person's skin to assume there was a weapon before the shooting. We all remember the videos of the Baltimore Police Department planting evidence, so we know it's not unheard of. This state prosecutor seems to believe and has a track history to support it, frankly, that calling Ms. Taylor a criminal and linking her to drug trafficking will somehow sway public opinion and the public will not be outright outraged by Breonna Taylor's murder. And instead will conclude that the officers were justified in the shooting of uh, a, drug a drug dealer, kind of an ends justify the means argument. Well, the reality is that this is a sick and toxic policy. And frankly, we wanna thank the fourth estate. We wanna thank the press for revealing this ploy and generating the publicity storm that's resulted in 
the state prosecutors finally doing the right thing and dismissing that condition of the plea bargain. The reality is though, the harm has already been done. They have once again dragged Breonna Taylor's through, name through the mud and the behavior is outrageous and should be addressed by the state Supreme Court. Well, this has all been very disappointing and I'm sure we're going to see a lot more in the way of protesting as a result. I think you're absolutely right, Erica. This is going to be a hot topic in the news for a while to come. Absolutely. So with that, let's move on to segment two this week, which as promised is going to be about jury trials in the COVID crisis. Now, during the coronavirus era, courts across the country and here in Ohio have struggled with balancing health concerns with the defendant's right to a timely and speedy trial by jurors who reflect their communities. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see where that would be a problem. Um, can you tell us what some of the problems are with the trials during a pandemic? Well, the first problem is getting the jury themselves. Elderly and minority community members are more likely to be affected by COVID-19, resulting in a non-representative jury pool. And this is a major constitutional issue because defendants have a constitutional right to be tried by a jury that represents a fair cross-section of their community. That fair cross-section right dates back all the way to 1975, when the Supreme Court of the United States said in Taylor, Louisiana, that an individual has the right to a selection of a pettit jury from a representative cross-section of the entire community, and that such a cross-section is an essential component of the Sixth Amendment right to a jury trial. Defendants who do go to trial in person experience a loss of the interpersonal dynamics and there's a blocked connection between jurors, the jurors and the attorneys, and the attorneys and their clients, and the attorneys and the witnesses due to the physical barriers that have been put up, the distance that's placed in between one another, and the use of face masks, shields, um, and other protective measures that are necessary as the result of COVID-19. Defendants have frequently challenged mask wearing in the courtroom on Sixth Amendment grounds. And that litigation is going to be hot over the next six to 12 months. Let's see that. Now, are Zoom trials a good option? I mean, I, I know that in some areas of the law, for instance, I just got a divorce over just teleconference. It was great. I was doing the dishes while it was happening. <laughs> well, as, as Glad we are, Erica, that you were able to get your divorce while you were doing the dishes. Um, I, would, I would say a few things about Zoom hearings. First and foremost, they are a great opportunity to ensure that people who are incarcerated have quick access to judges and the opportunity to post bond. They're excellent for things like arraignments, bond hearings, probation violation hearings, because they can be so fast but a case system is already developing in regards to those who have access to reliable internet, 
knowledge of the use of the technology and the ability to discuss issues privately with defense counsel. If you are too poor to own a stable and reliable internet connection, you are not able to zoom into your court. And now you have to put yourself at risk in order to attend your hearing. Or you have to have private defense counsel, somebody that can afford themselves to have an office with a conference room and a video hookup to attend your Zoom hearing at that location. Now, as far as trials go, the Florida Supreme Court has actually already addressed a very similar issue when they repealed or they, they declined to allow a 2000 rule, a, a year 2000 rule that allowed juvenile delinquency matters to be heard by remote video hookup. In that written opinion, the judges acknowledged that the remote process was cost effective and it solved a lot of transportation barriers, but it diminished the sense of seriousness surrounding the hearings and it really caused a lot of confusion on behalf of the young defendants. It exacerbated intellectual and class inequalities and it deprived, it deprived defendants of their ability to engage in privileged private communication with their attorneys. We have to be really cautious with allowing these hearings to go forward, especially in a criminal justice situation. Now, in Commonwealth versus Atkinson, um, another uh, state Supreme Court decided that remote testimony does not satisfy the right to confront one's accusers. The constitutional challenge is a basic due process one. So we're looking at the fifth and the 14th amendments. And due process of law includes the right to be present in purpose whenever a defendant's presence can reasonably uh, use the substantial relationship with their opportunity to defend against the allegations they're facing. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. So what are some of the options for people that are facing a trial? In Ohio, it's a county by county free for all. Many counties are returning to in-person trials and requiring masks. That will be something that we may be addressing in the very near future and fighting against. We will be strongly opposed to jury trials where jurors, witnesses, and attorneys are required to wear masks. You know, many courts have eliminated public seating in place of, in order to put jurors back in the gallery where the public normally sits. Now, you'll remember, Erica, that the right to a jury trial is the right to a public trial. And that public trial is still a fundamental right. And it is necessary to ensure that people have a complete panoply of their constitutional rights. Now, in a, in a real, in a regular jury trial, in-person connection with the jurors is critical. And the best defense attorneys will research the state of the county that the trial is in and prepare arguments to continue that trial if the specific restrictions infringe on the accused's fundamental right to a trial. It's important to balance the accused right to have a speedy trial in cases where individuals are incarcerated because they're not able to make a high cash bond with the safety of both the attorneys, the defendant, and the jurors. In situations where uh, a defendant is not incarcerated, 
there really is no reason at all to go forward with a jury trial right now. Why should we go forward with a jury trial with diminished rights when it's not necessary? Zoom trials are absolutely not an option for criminal defendants. This is literally a life and liberty question, and it's too important for the informality and distractibility that comes with Zoom and video-based calls. The only exception would be the use of Zoom for very specific witnesses at the trial. And in very rare circumstances where a particular witness's emotional connection to a trial is irrelevant, such as an expert witness. And if they are unavailable and they are unable to come into the courtroom for whatever reason, uh, their testimony can be provided through a video hookup. But we must have jurors in person. We must have accusers in the courtroom testifying in person without masks. Yeah, I mean, that's, that makes a lot of sense too. I mean, it's, it's such a crazy situation. I don't think that anyone could have dreamed this up to where people are, you don't even think about that. The people are wearing masks. You can't see their expressions. You can't read the room. I mean, how are you supposed to navigate your defense on behalf of your client when you can't see what's going on for the people, you know, from the, from the jurors that are kind of like me that have no poker face? <laughs> well, Erica, I think everybody has experienced during the pandemic uh, that moment when they've come across somebody who's wearing a mask and they can't tell even if that's somebody that they know very well. Uh, time and time again, I have seen good friends walking down the street and not being able to recognize them because they're wearing their mask. That's, that's not always the case, but some people have a very full face covering to their masks. And when you add sunglasses out in public, uh, it becomes very difficult to identify somebody. That same problem uh, arises in the courtroom where you're not able to identify what a person looks like, what their reaction is. Um, are they even paying attention to the testimony that's been provided? Ohioans have to exercise their voice. And I would say everybody across the nation needs to exercise their voice on, in public policy by voting for candidates who are first and foremost going to support bail reform and pretrial release modifications especially in the light of the pandemic and the danger to both people in custody, but also to the officers at the county and local jails. Citizens must also be, ad be advocates for the criminal justice system to work properly and support candidates who are going to put a halt to unnecessary jury trials and run jury trials in a safe, transparent, and uh, socially readable manner. Defendants have to act now to ensure that they get an experienced and a relentless trial warrior to stand up for them. Every decision leading up to the trial and the trial itself bears on the ultimate outcome of the case. And if someone is convicted, they need to be ready, willing, and able to appeal that conviction and the diminished rights that that defendant faced at the time of his jury trial. The time to win your case is at trial. 
you must make these arguments at trial, before the trial starts, during the trial, and immediately after the trial if the trial results in a conviction. Pre-indictment um, is a great, great opportunity to resolve cases. Um, people are, the prosecutors are trying to wheel and deal right now. Um, you've really got to get ahead of the game if you're in the situation of being accused of a crime right now. Well, I, I'm glad that your clients have you to stand up for them in this case, because I feel like you have a lot of leverage to have some of these cases thrown out if they're not tried properly. That's absolutely right, Erica. Our willingness to fight the fight, make the arguments that are necessary, uh, really puts a crimp in prosecutors' desire and willingness to play the games that they like to play with people's lives. Well, I mean, I guess this is a, <laughs> a good time to tell people that if they do have any questions about their criminal cases at all, they should give the law office of Brian Jones a call because you are very experienced. You keep up on the latest trends. And I'm not sure many criminal lawyers are out there thinking about the disadvantage that you might have to something like your jury wearing a mask. And you're willing to fight even against this, what may seem to most people like the smallest thing in order to get a positive outcome for your clients. So I'd say if you know anyone that needs help, definitely give them a call. They are on top of this. Well, I really appreciate you saying that, Erica. And there are no small things when it comes to a jury trial. Uh, people say that football is a game of inches. And I would say that a jury trial is a, a contest of the smallest arguments and any one individual legal ruling can make or break a defense. And defendants, when faced with the might of the United States government or the government of your state and all of the resources that they have to prosecute and incarcerate you, really have to take advantage of every little opportunity that we have and make sure that even though the playing field is tilted heavily in favor of the government, we tilted a little bit further back in favor of the defendant. So with that, Erica, I want to say thank you for joining me today. I want to thank everybody out there listening to this show. And I want to remind you that if you want to become more informed about the situation facing uh, Louisville, Kentucky with Breonna Taylor, um, the studies done by the University of Vermont and Cornell University, and everything related to your civil rights and the criminal injustice system, including police accountability um, and how jury trials are running in the COVID-19 environment, check out tlobj.com. You can stay informed by following our blog, following our social media, facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, Erica. Uh, at TLOBJ, and you can find our information using the hashtags no walk, no talk, and no blow. We'll be back next week with a sui generis perspective on the next big thing in the news about civil rights and the criminal injustice system. 
as well as a discussion of the wide-ranging collateral consequences facing people who are convicted of crimes. Erica, my, grandma, my grandfather always told me, don't do anything I wouldn't do when we parted ways. And to that, to all of my friends, I add, if you do and you get caught, call me. I'll defend your rights as I'd want mine defended.